We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. We're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and activism. So contemplation, which includes meditation, mindfulness, sacred chanting, and other practices, has exploded in popularity over the past several years. We see magazine covers constantly extolling the miracle of mindfulness or touting the latest research showing how meditation changes the brain. We see countless meditation centers, Buddhist meditation centers, uh, and what seems like a yoga studio on every single corner. Christian churches are offering slow, meditative, tizay chanting services and centering prayer groups. Chelsea and I are both contemplative practitioners, and we can attest to the power of these practices in our daily lives. We've talked before on this podcast about how these spiritual practices have both led to and informed our activism. On the whole, the contemplative revival in American spirituality seems to be a really positive development. And yet there's a downside. Too often the spaces where these practices can be experienced are overwhelmingly white and center white experiences. It often requires money and a certain familiarity with white upper middle class norms to access meditation retreats, yoga studios, and other resources. Our guest today is aiming to change that. Teresa Pasquale Mateus is a trauma therapist, yoga teacher, contemplative, and co-founder of the Mystic Soul Project, a nonprofit organization that seeks to bring forward a people of color-centered approach to action-slash-activism and contemplation-slash-mysticism. She is also the author of the book Sacred Wounds, A Path to Healing from Spiritual Trauma. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm glad to be able to talk about these sort of intersections and marginal spaces uh, with, with both of you today. Thanks. It's so great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story of coming to both contemplative practices and activism? Sure. Uh, contemplative practices for me, I came about in actually the healing process from my own traumatic experiences um, in late adolescence. I had sexual experiences of sexual trauma, multiple experiences. And out of that, I was trying to seek a way to heal. And traditional therapy practices, talk therapy, was not particularly effective. And that led me to finding, by accident, essentially, yoga initially, which helped to sort of center me in my body. And then through my yoga studio, I found a, a Buddhist um, Buddhist training program that I got involved for for a few years, which taught me how to sort of ground my thought process and see my thoughts as separate from myself, which is important with the healing process. And then thirdly, I found my way to Christian contemplative practice, which um, as I was dialoguing with another POC person the other day, uh, many of us, and I think a lot of people in general, aren't even aware if you grew up in a Christian tradition necessarily that there's a root contemplative tradition. A lot of people just don't have that 
don't have access to that initially within their lineage. And so um, it was sort of a return back to my home base and really the final part of my own healing process that was embodied and then was some sort of mental process of, of reflecting and changing my thoughts and then closed with coming back to this sort of deep spirituality that I was able to seat in. And I really integrated that into my practice, becoming a trauma therapist for the last 12 years. And really through bringing spirituality and healing together, um, just by chance of, of really beginning to engage back with communities of faith and then communities of activism um, and the combination where those two met, uh, I found this sort of deep need for people to have spiritual resources and healing resources simultaneously and intermingled with their action in the world. And so um, sort of my relationship to activism, I think is important to name. Not all of us are the front lines activists, not that I don't go to marches or protests, but that I've learned that my role has been intended to be um, behind the lines and really supporting specifically the spirituality and healing component that is often lacking in activist spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important to acknowledge because I often talk to groups of people who are very much ensconced in these sort of spiritual worlds and contemplative um, sort of milieus where they want to somehow be supportive of activism, but they feel like, well, I'm not an activist. I'm not a protester. I'm not like a, a organizer. But there's a desire. There's a desire to get involved. And I think it's important to to help people to see that there's a lot of different ways to be part of the larger activist community and to be part of the larger ecosystem that we're all sort of like supporting one another in different ways. Can you talk a little bit more about specifically the Mystic Soul Project and um, what brought that specifically about and maybe some of your experiences of what you felt were lacking in the contemplative environments that led you to create this project? Yes. So the Mystic Soul Project, really, I can say was born a number of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, as I had, I've been about 15 years since that first initial integration or learning about the Christian contemplative um, community and practices and lineage and tradition, um, really studying and learning everything I possibly could. Uh, which consisted of reading everything I could get my hands on and watching every webcast that I could find and and um, culminated with going to um, the Living School Program, which is part of the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico with Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bergeau, and, and Jim Finley, who are three um, contemporary contemplatives in our world. And, um, and it was all powerful education, the entire process, but I reached the end of this, um, this sort of journey and realized that uh, everything that I had learned was powerful and beautiful, but none of it represented the fullness of myself in the sense as being a person of color. And that all throughout that journey, I hadn't really encountered almost anyone else that was a person of color that was represented or present in those spaces. And so it was this sort of a beautiful growth process in this deep and long tradition within the Christian spiritual lineage. And then this also deep grief at the fact of this sort of awakening and realization that the fullness of who I was wasn't, hadn't been represented in those spaces in ways that it just wasn't able to. 
And out of that, the question rose, is there a place somewhere that actually encompasses the wholeness of myself? And is this something that any other people of color are wrestling with? And so it really, it began as just sort of asking those questions of other uh, people of color and people I was affiliated with in spiritual and faith spaces um, and, and getting a lot of similar answers, you know, of feeling like, um, particularly Christian contemplative spaces, but since really expanding that out um, and and particularly being informed by the work of Angel Coyota Williams, what she's doing within um, the Buddhist spheres is that it's, it's not limited to one tradition. You know, there's, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's a very white-centered um, certain level of privilege and wealth that comes along with having access to a lot of the great spiritual wisdoms in our Western construct of it. Um, and so... I realized that wasn't a question I was asking alone and that people were like, you know, there were some sort of POC led yoga studios here or the work of angel, um, people like angel in Buddhism trying to create a bridge. But in my own Christian contemplative tradition, um, my root tradition, that wasn't even a conversation anyone was having, but people that I talked to that were people of color were definitely interested in it and felt pretty annexed from those teachings and annexed from that community set. And then that made me feel both emboldened to continue to follow that rabbit hole and also saddened that there were so many people um, that had had felt that similar experience. And so the Mystic Soul Project came out of asking those questions to a point at which I felt something has to be born from this, these questions, you know, this idea and space has to be created where people actually can show up, be in conversation with one another, um, and begin to create a continuum that isn't necessarily totally separate and apart from the existing white contemplative lineage, but has its own space to build and grow what hasn't existed or hasn't been given space to exist yet, to uh, create space for people that are learners, people that are teachers, for the idea that we are all doing both at the same time. Um, and also deconstructing a sort of hierarchy um, that in general, in terms of the way that whiteness functions, that, that was another sort of realization because when I would have conversations in sort of white contemplative communities, people would say, oh, well, there are no people of color teachers or name me the top wisdom teachers. And the truth is, is that communities of color don't function in the same hierarchical way around spirituality. It's much more at a level of community and a level of where you are. So there's less likely to be your three wisdom teachers that you can point to, um, plus the fact that there's been no visibility and platform for that. So the combination of these two kind of invisibilities made it seem to the larger sort of world of contemplative spirituality that they didn't exist, when in fact they exist in abundance, but they're not connected with one another. Um, so the Mystic Soul Project is is meant to begin to connect the fibers of practice um, and lineage of that really is a people of color centered approach to not just spirituality and contemplative spirituality, but to healing and how it's deeply connected with activism. So also acknowledging where those bridges are, where activism needs deep spirituality. There's also deep, rich tradition in communities of color of those things already being connected. Um, and so how do you take the richness of that and expand uh, a community collaboration that is national and a conversation that is national for people of color to meet with each other and talk with each other? Um, and then also, how do you bridge that into the existing white-centered lineage that's known as the lineage with the capital, you know, with capital letters, and begin to create conversation across these areas of difference and mutual validity of, of both sides? Mm. 
Teresa, I really love hearing about um, the ways in which you're bringing people together and, and that these conversations are being had and that you're creating a space for these conversations. And I'm curious, you know, because as a white person, I've only recently in the last year or two woken up to the fact that the the contemplative circles I'm in as well as organizations I'm part of are really are run in a really like white Eurocentric way. And, you know, because it's what I've grown up with and and I don't know any better, I've I've been really wondering what a POC centered space looks like, like what or led POC led um contemplative circle would look like like can you give us like one thing that you said was um that it's more community oriented and less hierarchical and I was wondering if you could give us any more examples of what that might look like absolutely um part of this you know so I say it's it's a experiment like mystic soul is a bit experimentation but it's also it's remembering so part of it is remembering how tribal and indigenous communities, the ancestral communities that people of color come from once related to each other and were stripped away from. Um, and then it is also experimenting with how do you in, how do you invent a way to integrate that in a world where, as you described, Chelsea is so infused with this other way of being. Um, so to build out a framework to start to, to create a different way of being, we've been, um, we've been, tooling around this sort of specific rule of life that we're calling for mystic soul project, which is meant to, how do we reorient around some of the things that have been given in the Western colonized perspective of things? And how do we retool them to center back on uh, more indigenous and tribal ways of being? So an example of one of those that is really prominent and uh, for our conference we're working on in January, that's going to be sort of our, our launching pad for, for a larger community construct of let's, pu let's put these rules of life into action and see how they form. But um, one of the big ones is rhythm over time. So we have a leadership team that was born out of a retreat that we hosted in March with young leaders who are interested faith and justice leaders who are interested in integrating the contemplative in, but are um, based in communities of color where they've not had access to it before in any um, constructed way. And so when we came together, we started thinking about what is deconstructing all of these, these ways of knowing. Um, and one of our deep conversations became over time. And this idea, this Western construction of time is becoming king over how we do things, when we do things um, that can often get in the way. You know, so uh, recently I was at a conference where there was a panel of speakers and someone who was telling a deep story, a person of color was telling a deep story of their own history of trauma. And interestingly enough, the only person representing a marginalized community um, in that panel discussion was cut off by the moderator, who was a white moderator, for the purposes of time. We don't have enough time. Um, and so what it made me think of, and, and it's not any, it's not a critique of that specific person, it's the system that constructs how we function that way, right? So I was watching it more observationally, look at what happens when you prioritize time over relationship, over story, over pain, over community, it destructed the whole uh really community even that was there, particularly the people of color listening to the story and seeing this woman be cut off, it totally deconstructed everything that it was the panel was intended to do. So, so that idea of when we make 
time king over all the things that we really want to actually value in our human relationships because that's how it's been constructed, it actually becomes more destructive than anything else. So as we've been planning towards this conference and as we've been in relationship with each other, uh, as a leadership team, we've been thinking about how do we continue to prioritize uh, rhythm. What we call rhythm is, the, um, is, the, is all of those parts, the relationship, the community, the story, the pain, the beauty, um, over time. And what does that actually look like? And so like, that's the part that is an experiment, especially because when we, you apply it to something like a conference or a gathering where people anticipate certain constructs of time, you also have to say this starts at this point and this ends at this point. Um, but how you, what you do in the middle is really up to you. You know, that, that idea that, that this session starts at this time and ends at this time is only a mandate because we've we've decided that that's a construct we live in. Yeah. It reminds me of something we did an interview actually yesterday with Kate and I think this will yours will air before that. Um, but with our friend Kate Warning, who you also know, and she was talking a little bit about that too about um from framing it as more of a, a feminine like getting in touch with her own sort of more feminine ways of doing things and, and getting back in touch with the sense of being in rhythm rather than being on this like deadline, like results oriented sort of time based schedule. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people are feeling the need for that right now and um, the benefit of that sort of orientation and um, and are still not sure of like, how do we do that? You know, how do we deconstruct these frameworks that we've all been raised with and lean into other ways of doing things. Well, it's interesting though. I mean, what I, I was thinking of Kate's story as well, um, because it was so powerful for her to step out of that, um, adherence to time and those, those constructs and something I was thinking about, and we haven't really gone into this yet, but, um, I was thinking about how, as white people, we've sort of been put into the soup of whiteness, you know, and, and I was thinking about how we've lost our own re relationship to our own lineages and indigenous cultures from whatever, you know, land we came from, you know, and, and just seeing that as the shadow side of like taking other people's culture, you know what I mean? Like cultural appropriation, like, mm. um, and, and all of that comes with colonization and, and like, oppressing other peoples and taking away their culture. And, and, um, I mean, not to, not to compare the pain at all, like it's not about that, but just sort of seeing how, you know, I think there's a yearning for that from all people, you know, to reconnect to their roots. Right. And I, I agree. I think that people feeling like they have no roots, you know, so that's a lot of times what you hear is like, well, I'm just white. I don't have any roots, you know? And so, um, that disconnection as well on both parts um, of history, of memory that comes before the massive colonization. You know, there's plenty of other lineages that were destructed to create different kinds of empire over time. And so um, a disconnection with history, for sure, then creates people that think that they have an absence of mm. history, that whiteness is my whole history. One, it makes you align more with these constructs and principles of westernization and colonization because that feels like that's my lineage when it's really not. It's mm -hmm. a construct based out of empire and power structures right. um, that just lifted up a certain kind of identity but isn't, isn't the identity itself. 
Um, and then also does definitely lend itself then to appropriation, the sort of deeply seeking mystery. Um, and, and, and this, and often just a, just an ignorant lack of realization that when you, when you just pick and choose, you know, from other people that that's taking, you know, I, I talk a little, I talk some in, um, in the work on mystic soul, because I get asked a lot, you know, like, well, what about, like, what is everything appropriation? And I don't think it's a universal. So I, th I think there's a difference between invitation and appropriation, right? Appropriation is I'm just picking and choosing things that I like from other people's cultures without, without off it being offered to me. And that's very, that's a very colonizing mindset. You know, it's, uh, this is mine. Um, Michael Che is a, a black comedian. He has a great, he has a great, uh, bit about, uh, white, white girls in Brooklyn, no offense to white girls in Brooklyn, but he talks about this. <laughs> I'm a white girl I know, in Brooklyn. <laughs> I know, I know, but, but it's funny. He, do, he does this whole thing about like, he's like, it used to be scary there. And he's like, and then white women came in and they're like, Brooklyn's mines now. And then it wasn't scary. <laughs> and then it wasn't scary anymore. But, <laughs> but I just think what's funny about that is obviously that's a huge generalization, but uh, what's funny about that is this idea is that there's something different than saying something's mine now, right, versus being invited in. So mm. I think there are mm -hmm. plenty of ways that culture, other cultures um, and traditions invite people in all the time um, to practice, to, um, to history, to, uh, to different ritual. You know, and I think, I think when you're in deep relationship with a community and you're invited into practices and you're invited to, to bring those into your life in a way, um, it's all comes down to the relationship with it is very mm -hmm. different than just coming in and saying, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take this because I like it. That's different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm really, um, I'm curious about is whether you see a role for, I'm assuming you do, but like for people of color really stepping up and taking leadership in showing the rest of us like a kind of, developing alternative paradigms and alternative ways of not just doing practice, but marrying it with activism. And I'm thinking in relation to this about the amazing example we've had of Standing Rock and what happened there where you had like an indigenous led, uh, spiritually grounded um, sort of activist community arise. And, um, and you had people coming to sort of participate in that, not always, um, not always in totally constructive ways, but um, I know for a lot of people, I know Chelsea, you went and, you know, we've had some other friends that went that just found it to be really transformative, like open their eyes and their hearts to sort of a different way of of doing activism. And I'm just wondering um, if you have any thoughts about that, if you have any dreams for how Mystic Soul is contributing to that sort of revolution in activist and spiritual paradigms. Yeah, I mean, I think even when you mentioned just talking to Kate about her deconstruction of time coming from the sort of sacred feminine piece, I think I do believe that the transformation of, of the sort of next, this next generation, this next wave of spirituality, of healing and of activism is going to come from the margins. Um, it's going to come from the spaces that, that haven't been or, or have have more access to one pain, but also, um, more access to being able to deconstruct without being totally bound to sort of this, the existing systems of functioning. 
Um, and, and we're all bound to it to some extent. So I would say Standing Rock is, is a beautiful, I mean, Standing Rock was complex in a variety of ways, a variety of ways of, of how you create that leadership, how you create a space like that, and how a space like that is, is a temporary place, you know? So, um, it's a model. So I think Standing Rock has, I talk about it a lot in terms of it being a model for an indigenous sort of reclamation of all those parts, right? I mean, simultaneously, you're teaching people direct action. You have a walkable front line that is in access from where you're living in community, where you're sharing meals. Um, so you have this community construct. You have activism, both training and practice happening in real time within the same space. You have healing space. So you have therapy and body healing and medical care within a construction at the center of that community. Um, and you had deep spiritual practice that was integrated in every component of, of those areas of focus. So in some ways, it is the ult- it's the ultimate model for, for what I think we should be aspiring for. And I think what we've been missing, where we have this very Western siloed, healing is here, spirituality is here, activism is here. So separated, Standing Rock was really an illumination, one of how those pieces in our own, again, in the remembrance, are connected. We just disconnected them. And in many ways, Standing Rock was a space where particularly, specifically the Lakota indigenous community was reclaiming their memory of what that looks like. And so for me, it's also a learning lesson of we don't take the memory of the Lakota way of doing it and bring it back and appropriate it. Mm -hmm. But how do you take the lessons of remembering that they offered up um, in a way that I think, uh, again, it's it's just more easily articulated if we go back to indigenous and tribal models of being because all those pieces were so much more inherently together and because they're so deeply connected with activism in the sense that the fact that they were taken away and stripped away has been deeply embedded particularly in our American construct of what justice has needed to be and look like has been about deconstructing those barriers created um, by the very things that stripped away the tools that we actually need now so in some ways it's like it's there's a potential for this full circle return um, that I think could be deeply healing. And I think Mm. not just communities of color need, but we need as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Teresa and I went to Standing Rock together and, um, and I was so amazed at how many people came. And I, and I was thinking like, how many times have, uh, developers come onto native land and how many pipelines have been built through indigenous land and, and like, why now, why are, why are people suddenly paying attention? Like, what was it about standing rock? And I think that there's something in there about this intersection of a spiritual revolution and, and people waking up to, their histories of oppression and, um, colonization. And, um, but I've still been wondering like, what was sort of the, like, why was it a perfect storm? Like why did 10,000 people show up that Thanksgiving week that we came, you know, I don't know if you have any thought on that, Teresa. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of factors. I think, um, I think one is, uh, this interconnection that we have in a way that we've never had before. So the last, um, the last Lakota standing or standoff was in the seventies with the U S military. And that, that garnered national attention. Um, and there were celebrities there and it was fairly big 
for that time. But I think what's changed, even if we look at that as a model of like the last generation's civil rights era and this one, um, is a, a massive global interconnection. So you had hundreds of tribes that came over the time that Standing Rock, um, the Standing Rock action was at its fullest from all over the world. Um, and so I think it is, it is that knowledge that we are all related, which is sort of a Lakota phrase anyway, is, is a Mikatui Oyosin, which means we are all, all related. Um, it's this idea that a Maori tribe can see on TV and on social media and on Facebook exactly what's happening and see an interconnection to that, um, you know, all the way across the world, that tribes that have never had a vocalization are seeing this thing moving and and rising and and really want to be a part of that, especially um, for tribes that have been so oppressed in their own local context and not heard. There was I, it felt like a, it felt like a, again a remembrance, um, a sort of historic cry of all of this pain, but also all of this power and strength rising up that people wanted to be deeply connected to. And then it expands out then from just indigenous tribes. So then you have communities of color and then you have, you know, people that want to be in allyship that are all kind of seeing that energy rise out of that one space. And so I think it was just emblematic of this, this desperate need of remembrance and this desperate need for sacredness. I mean, people were seeing on TV and on social media, it wasn't just a place where we, people were in protest. It wasn't even a place where protest was the language being utilized. It was protection. And so um, this sort of energy of uh, spirituality deeply connected with action, I think, was so visible that people, I think it was more than it just about being the moment for social action. It was, it also feels like it was a spiritually connected moment that people wanted to, to um, there's a sacredness that people wanted to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to a little bit about something you mentioned about like the sort of hierarchy and the way it's constructed in a lot of the traditional contemplative spaces that are rooted in white Western culture. I, I've been to retreats with people like um, Cynthia Bougeau and, and Thomas Keating, who I consider to be wonderful teachers and who I love in a lot of ways. But one of the things that's always put me off in these circles a little bit is sometimes the way that um, there's like this guru worship or hero worship that it seems like it seems like it's happened in a lot of spaces not just these it's it's one of the things that um uh put me off the evangelical church which is with a tradition that i grew up in um and as much as i uh, appreciate the wisdom of these teachers and i'm not necessarily laying the blame for this on them like the way the ways that we seem to sort of want to put these teachers up on pedestals like, for instance, I was at a, a retreat at Snowmass, and when Thomas Keating came in, someone, like, knelt down and, like, kissed his hand. It was, like, so over the top, but it was kind of funny. Um, and I've seen this sort of happen over and over again in, in different sorts of communities. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, like, how, because um, you spoke to this a little bit about why people don't see the wisdom teacher's of color, um, why they think that they don't exist. And I'm wondering whether you can speak to your philosophy of leadership and how you intend to construct that within Mystic Soul and whether there's a different way of doing that. Yeah, I think, so I think it's both and in the sense of like, 
I think there's power in, in raising up elders. So every tribe, yeah. every culture has always done that. And so I think there's value in that. The problem is, as you sort of uh, described, there's a, there's a Western way we've done that that has created really big power paradigms. It's not just that there's wisdom, but we've just we've ascribed and given over sometimes all of our power into mm-hmm. well, into that wisdom in a very sort of hierarchical specific hierarchical and specific way. And so I think that's um, so I think there's multiple pieces. I think um, I think that a piece of the work of, of um, centering PLC uh, um, wisdom is going there are going to be elders like Barbara Holmes yeah. is an example of someone that I see as an elder. But I also think that um, in the way that mystic soul is construct or is trying to construct ourselves um, is that we do want to break down those paradigms of like that hero worship, you know, evangelicalism Mm -hmm. is another, as you described another example where it's really primed, you know, just the history of the way that it's functioned and the sort of celebritism. I think there's difference between wisdom and then celebritizing gets real dangerous. And, and then also it silences people without even me, you know, either meaning to, or in more subtle ways. So if these are the wise people, then I am not right? right. If these are the teachers, then I am not. And so it automatically, um, you know, makes, disempowers other people. So the last thing we want to do is recreate that process and the benefit the difference, I guess, and the benefit of doing this Mystic Soul Project and trying to cre- to create this conversation around centering POC ways of doing things in this very particular way um, is that we're starting in, in many ways with a blank slate. Not that these people haven't been existing and doing separate things, but in terms of a wider community structure, there's all those frameworks of who is wise or who is important or who should be celebritized doesn't exist yet in that way. And so the hope is, is that we can build a more flattened structure, a more mm-hmm. decentralized structure of wisdom. So, and again, the, the conference that we're doing is somewhat our experimentation pod for that. So we do have some speakers that are sort of main stage. And the, tr- and the truth is, in all transparency, and I think this is part of the process of deconstructing, is also saying, like, we're not getting it right all the time. Yeah. We, we had sort of set up some of the constructs of way it's going to function you know, a year ago. And so some of those even now after deconstructing as much as we have, I would probably change, you know, Um, and so that will change over time. I realized how enculturated my own history is in in that sort of Western way of doing things that you don't, that there's, even when you take down layers, there's more layers that you don't realize that you still have to deconstruct inside yourself. And so, um, so we're doing our best to own that the space is, co-teacher, co-learner, one of the ways that we're facilitating dialogue rather than them being workshops at the conference is um, rather than being teaching workshops where somebody comes in and says, I know all these things and you just look, come and listen, is we're doing just conversations and we're doing a lot of pra- shared practices. So we're not doing a whole lot of dialogue, but where, where we are doing dialogue, it's, it's sort of facilitated by somebody who's offering up an idea. And then it's being curated by the community that shows up to have that conversation. And that's a way mm-hmm. in which we're trying to do it differently. Um, not that there isn't wisdom in the people that we've asked to facilitate. We're asking them to facilitate because they have interest or area of focus. But we don't want to center that either because all these people coming have not been heard before. And as we've seen, as we've gone through our applications for the conference, have all of this wisdom just tucked away that, that has been unexposed. And so... 
uh, we're hoping to create a flattened structure by just creating space that is more about conversation and is less about one person up at the front and multiple people just writing notes and that kind of um, formula. But, but again, it's all, it's still all in an experiment, experimentational place. Yeah. And we can't, I mean, I know that you know this cause you're a therapist. Like we can't, we can't just wholesale change like overnight. Like it's always change and deconstruction and progress is always like an incremental pro like it, it always is like you take one step after the other after the other and you like go in one direction and then course correct and say like actually maybe I need to go this direction so it sounds like you're really allowing yourself room for that process to take place yes we're doing our best to be both really transparent and really humble as much as possible about yeah. like we know we're just we're trying you know we're trying to create space and we really want it to be curated by the community and so as that was as more people come into the conversation that wisdom will continue to grow that that really so even some of the direction you know even in terms of like funding people are asking what happens next and i have some ideas about what i'd love to happen next but i also feel like if i say these are the things we're doing absolutely uh, before there's a wider community conversation about what's needed, then I'm just creating another paradigm where I'm telling people what they need and then delivering mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Teresa, I wonder if I might ask a sort of personal question, um, taking a little detour now, but um, I'm just curious, how do you personally reconcile a Christian practice, a Christian contemplative practice and that lineage um, with reconnecting to your indigenous roots. I mean, just because like Christianity has been so intertwined with colonization and, and imperialism. And so how do you reconcile that within yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think for myself and many other people, this particular, say 20 to 40 something generation, that is the ultimate question that people are wrestling with. Um, and I can answer for me personally, but also I just want to say there's a whole continuum of ways that people are wrestling with that that I found everything from totally abdicating Christianity and going back to indigenous traditions entirely to practicing both together to trying to engage to learn about indigenous culture while still staying primarily in a Western tradition. Um, for me, they've always been really complexly intertwined. Um, I was... I was um, I started my life in an orphanage in Bogota, Colombia, raised for the first four months of my life by nuns who named me after Teresa of Avila, the saint from Spain. So I would say the very beginning of my life has been the complexity of mixing my, you know, my below the equator origins in a Latin country, predominantly a brown person, meaning I have very indigenous origins. Um, inside of being literally first raised both in name and and in actual persons by nuns, by the Catholic tradition. Um, And so I have this sort of, this is why this is very, this is very specific to me, but I have this very um, intricate lifelong balance of, of the sweetness and the beauty of the Western Christian tradition that I grew up in. Um, a deep relationship that's grown over time with Teresa of Avila as a sort of personal, not just saint, but I think of her as sort of the mother, the mother figure that started my life because I've never found my birth mother. Um, and so the, and the richness of this Christian contemplative lineage that saved me in a time where I desperately needed it because of my trauma experience. Um, 
and formed me in so many ways. And, and the complexity that I think is so many people of color, specifically, I can speak to the United States, um, is then having to struggle against everything that raised you. Um, to ask hard questions and to maybe be in, ten in tension with the very things that raised you because it isn't the whole story. It is part of my story and it's sacred to me, but it isn't my whole story. And so the ability to stand in the strength of owning my whole story. And, and luckily, I come from a very progressive, liberal sort of background. And so the idea of incorporating my indigeneity has never been indirect conflict for me or in any way that I learned with my, my Western lineage, um, at least in an external way. I know a lot of people come from more conservative traditions that becomes like this construct of devil and evil that, that came out of colonization that gets imposed on indigenous um, identity. And so that, that's, a, that's a different level of hardship that a lot of people have to struggle with. And also why a lot of um, people of color that are reclaiming things have left or, or left formal church or left um, the entire Western religion altogether is because unfortunately for a lot of other people, there's these very binary constructs that are not connected. And my hope is because my journey has been so interwoven and, and, and the re reclamation part has been so powerful in filling up the part that was missing for me is to help people find um, space and conversation and vulnerability to own however much they want of either part. You know, that's also the therapist in me is whatever you decide is your way, but let's create space for that way to be open for other people. Mm, yeah, thank you. That's really, um, that's really beautiful. And I think that's one of the things in that Chelsea and I are both are really interested in asking of people as we continue in this podcast, like how they're navigating those intersections between different faith traditions, um, different sort of influences with them in them, different longings and how they're making that mix work for them on a personal level and also how communities are sort of navigating that on a collective level. Um, I'm curious, do you find that like with some of the other people that you're working with now in Mystic Soul, like um, is it predominantly rooted in Christianity or do you guys, are you sort of reaching towards a more inner spiritual um, or interfaith uh sort of orientation? Like how, how is that looking for you guys right now? Yeah. So uh, my larger aspiration would be to be much more inner spiritual. I think there's something, I mean, it's inherently inner spiritual to be reclaiming indigeneity and to be holding a Western tradition. Um, so I think it's also much the community that we're trying to construct is much more primed to have an in, way intersectional um, mm -hmm. inner spiritual conversation that I think's not happened in the inner spiritual world because it's also been so white. Um, but up and up to present, um, it has been still very Christian just because of the base of people that myself and the founders dominantly know. My aspiration is for, as the conversation grows, for those to be, I think our base is, is still going to continue to be Christian, just again, because of the context we come out of. But I really want, um, I want the conversation to span wider than that. And I think it has the potential to do that. I just don't have as much connection with the other traditions to, um, for us to be starting from that place. We want to be honest also about where we're starting from. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's exactly the thing that I'm going through right now with a, a community that I'm a part of sort of forming. And I think, you know, Nathan Hollifield. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, which is funny because I've been friends with his wife and for a while and she's been like, oh, you should meet Nathan. And then the first time I met him, he's like, I just met this woman, Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Um, we've been working on building a kind of an inner spiritual worshiping community here in Tacoma. But one of the things we've had to take a look at is just the fact that we're we're primarily people who come out of a Christian background. And we just need to be transparent about that, I think, especially with the history that Christianity has of trying to proselytize and convert people. And um, especially the churches have of trying to sort of like hide what they're doing in order to sort of get people. Um, Yeah, there've been a lot of, I think here in Tacoma, especially churches that have tried to say like, oh, we're like really different. We're not really doing the same old thing that churches have been doing, but really like we don't ordain women and we don't uh, affirm LGBTQ people (laughs) and like all this stuff. So we're sort of wrestling with wanting to reach past the boundaries of our tradition and orient more inner spiritually while also being really honest about this is the context we're coming from and this is what shaped us and there are some good things about that and there's some bad things about it so it's kind of an interesting place to be yeah and I think I mean I think each tradition is in its own way wrestling I um yeah it's just interesting I have I'm seeing clients now from um in my therapy practice from University of Chicago um and so some divinity students and and seeing people wrestling with these issues uh, in a variety of traditions. So I know the conversations are happening across traditions. Um, and I'm really interested for that, for those spaces to widen. I just think, again, we come from the context we come from. Yeah. And, um, and, and like you said, I think because the history of Christianity having this sort of like bait and switch phenomenon, um, unfortunately, that it's really important to be transparent about that. But, but my greater aspiration is that it becomes a much more textured conversation and landscape. Um, and I think the more that we speak, at least for the Mystic Soul Project, the more that we're speaking from this reclamation space, um, the more that crosses over a variety of complex landscapes of faith of what people are reclaiming. Hmm. Well, let me ask you, so if like for, for some of our listeners, like, and for people like me who are white and who are like, I love what you're describing. It sounds really awesome. It sounds like something that I would want to support and be a part of in some ways. Um, what is the role for white people to be involved in and or support what you're doing? Yes, excellent question. Well, one of the things that I've realized that's been really interesting a little bit doing Mystic Soul stuff has been like a sociological experiment because I'm noticing how people respond to it. And it's interesting, like even for our conference, when you write POC-centered, people think that means POC only. So I've had a lot of people that are white go, is there any way I can come? I'm not, I'm not a person of color. And I'm, and I'm like, well, I've gone to white centered conferences all my life, you know, <laughs> I'm not, but I, so I, I, I ended up writing a bunch of frequently asked questions that answer that spoke to some of that, because I want people to understand that, but just because we're a POC centered organization and just because our conference is a POC centered space doesn't mean that's exclusively people of color. It just means mm-hmm. that, that we're centering those voices and the practices and the wisdom. And um, part of the application process for our conference specifically is, was meant to be a way to invite people to all people to apply and also to curate a space that's intentional around people that are ready to be in that space. 
Um, and so the application process is a way to just kind of see people's readiness to be in that space um, in a way that, that will um, be most abundant. But, uh, but I think it's important to have not just white allyship in the sense of, of you know, people being supportive externally, but also those people that are willing and able to also be listeners internally, you know, to, to learn and absorb things that they may not have heard, be in a different kind of contemplative space than they've been in before. And to flip that paradigm, you, you need everybody there. You know, you can't flip a paradigm by making it exclusionary. And at the same time, there are different roles and spaces and places, right? So not every per, you know, not every person is going to come to our conference that's white, but some, it's a good space to be in, you know, and there's good things that partnerships and relationships and, and, and conversations that can come out of that. Um, some of it is about having conversation with external communities and organizations um, that are really looking to understand better and do their work inside of their own constructs better. So some of that has been building partnerships and education um, that aren't necessarily internal to what Mystic Soul is doing, but kind of bringing back, bringing that out into the wider, not just contemplative sphere, but wider world. Um, and then some of that is about funding and resources, right? So when we talk about like the white centered spiritual dynamics at, uh, that are currently exist, there's a lot of people that have garnered a lot from the spiritual lineages that have privilege and have finances. Um, and some of them are not necessarily people that are going to want or, or need to be in mystic soul space, but, um, but might want to support it. And so financial support is another way that people can give into something when they've gotten so much out of, of a similar construct in their own lives. And the last thing I would like to say is I think that there is importance of affinity space. So even in that inclusive model that we're trying to do, there's also certain sessions that will be POC specific and only at Mystic Soul Conference for people to process things in different ways. Um, and there's certain things like our retreat that was for leaders um, was intentionally only people of color because we were trying to curate a space that was honest and authentic in a very particular way um, and really for people of color. So I think there's also there's this whole continuum of what it looks like. And we're trying to find the space to bridge between all of those. Cool. I think we're we're probably getting towards the end of our time here. This has been an awesome conversation, and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with Mystic Soul Project and what you guys are going to do. Um, Did we give the info for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell people how they can connect with your work. Yes. So um, our we're on Facebook, the Mystic Soul Project on Facebook. And then we're also our hub website is mysticsoulproject.com. And there's a conference page on there for anyone who's actually still interested in applying for the conference. We have a registration deadline of October 11th, which we may extend out a little bit. But um, we're, we're about we're over two thirds full now, which is very exciting for me. Um, we didn't go very large, but we're we have a 200 maximum capacity where we are. And we're at about 150 um, attendees that are already registered. So um, congrats. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited for and, and this will be just the beginning of a much longer conversation. So we hope people connect to us. You can subscribe for our newsletter and updates um, and apply to the conference if you like. And then just keep uh, stay tuned on our Facebook page as we as things begin to evolve. 
Cool. And are you guys, do you guys have a podcast or are you starting a podcast? Yeah, I am working on that. I am not tech savvy. And so, um, <laughs> yes, I have one recorded episode that I have to figure out how to edit. And then we have a, a few other in the lineup um, that we're working on. We want to we want to put out at least a handful of them before we, the conference in January so that we give people a feel for what the conversation is because it's a very new landscape. So, yes, that will be hopefully in the next month we'll have our first episode out. Okay, cool. Well, we, um, we like to end our podcast by asking what is nourishing you right now. Teresa, what's nourishing you? Um, I think what is nourishing me the most right now are continued new conversations with young people of color talking about um, their own spiritual journeys and paths. I've met so many amazing people since we launched Mystic Soul in October, and it's just every time I f- a new person uh, reveals themselves to me, I get to hear another beautiful story. And so those have been really nurturing. What about you, Rebecca? Um, so it's interesting because uh, talking about returning to sort of roots and in indigenous traditions a little bit, one thing that I've been doing is trying to connect with my own ancestors a little bit. And um, particularly on my mother's side, they come from uh, an Appalachian uh, background where there there is a lot of history of like people being very poor and oppressed and some of them were coal miners um, and people like that. But it's interesting. I felt really almost like my my great grandmother who was Catholic and who I kind of consider um, sort of one of the people, even though I, I barely knew her as a child, who has influenced my own interest in the Christian contemplative tradition. Because when I was little, my mom would sometimes take me to mass, even though we were evangelical. She would take me to mass because for her, it was a place where she felt close to her grandmother. And I remember like her having um, her grandmother's rosary and it being something that I was always really fascinated by. And then my mother gave me like a, a, a Mary, like a medal with the Virgin Mary on it um, that used to belong to her grandmother. So like I had these artifacts that sort of like for me were these signifiers of this longing for a contemplative, um, more mystical approach to spirituality. So in my own meditation and spiritual practice, I've been trying to do some specific things to feel more connected to her. And that's actually been really nourishing for me. And I kind of feel like she's showing up in my life in different ways. That's beautiful. Thanks, Rebecca. What about you, Chelsea? Um, well, what's nourishing me right now, or inspiring me, I should say, um, might be a better word. I, I went to a talk with Charles Eisenstein the other night, mm-hmm. who wrote uh, the, the More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And he really, even within his talk, was trying to um, elevate voices that aren't often heard. You know, he was like, we haven't heard, you know, we were doing a Q and a, and it had just been a bunch of dudes asking him <laughs> questions. And he was like, where are the women? I want to hear from women. Cause it's just boring when it's a bunch of dudes talking. And, um, but one thing that he said that I think relates to this sort of like reconnecting to the deep feminine spirit at least that's what it brought up for me was he was sort of talking about like, who am I? Who's, who's Charles Eisenstein? All I do is like write things and talk about things, but there are all these invisible people out there who are bringing deep care to the world. And, and he, for him, it was sort of like what brings him hope are, it's sort of like this deep undercurrent of, um, transformation that 
he thinks is happening in the world. And, and we kind of just see what's on the surface level. And that's kind of why we're all like, what the hell is going on? We can't, you know, what are we going to do to change the world? And, and, you know, we're all screwed if we don't do something now, because we're kind of concentrating on like the, the, the top levels of it, which happens to be a lot of like these assertive people who are making themselves seen. Um, but really if we sort of tune into that deep undercurrent of, um, people who are, who are already living radically and bringing care to their communities, um, you know, that that's, I don't know. It was inspiring to me to hear that. And, um, mm-hmm. it was yeah. nice to hear him say that. Yeah. There's a lot of times what's the, the hopeful signs and, and the, the sort of, um, the change that's already occurring. It's like, we sometimes can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today, Teresa. It was really great to have you and to hear about what you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on and, and having this, these complex conversations. Awesome. Teresa, this was so great. Thank you. And thank you to everybody listening. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. It really helps us to increase our visibility and to find new listeners. We're also on Google Play, Playcast, and Stitcher. And let us know if there's another service or app you'd like us to submit to. Visit listentotherising.com to sign up for a newsletter, to find links to the topics we discuss, and to give us feedback. And then you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Listen to the Rising, and we're also on Facebook.